In the darkness, beyond the realm of normalcy, there are mysteries waiting to be uncovered. Mysteries that suggest that there is more lurking in the darkness than we may think. There are secrets waiting to be heard. Secrets that are only whispered during the nighttide. We seem to have an icy fascination with death. We fear it, yet we want so desperately to know exactly what it brings for us. Do we fade to black into some sort of deep nothingness? Or do we live on as some sort of different part of us? We often seek answers and validation about death's mysteries by trying to contact those who have already made that final journey. And throughout history, we humans have come up with some pretty clever ways of trying to communicate with the great beyond. From elaborate formal rituals to little pieces of cardboard with the alphabet carved on it, there's no shortage of ways we've devised a talk with the great beyond. So one of the most well-known methods of sphere communication just happens to be that alphabet-covered piece of cardboard that I mentioned earlier. It's known most commonly as the Ouija board, which many believe is the French and German words for yes. Now it seems that almost everyone out there has a strong opinion when it comes to the Ouija board. It seems to always strike up that passionate nerve in people when it's brought up, and almost everybody out there has some sort of a Ouija board story. And that's part of what makes the board so interesting. It has a way of kind of transcending itself. It's no longer an object, but a collection of stories. And most of us are familiar with stories of those who have played the game, those who encountered more than they bargained for. But very few of us are familiar with the board's first and most elusive story, the history of the Ouija board. It all starts in the mid-1800s, after the end of the Civil War. This is when the spiritualist movement exploded in America. And of course, it seems when it comes to anything paranormal, it always seems to have some sort of root with the spiritualist movement. So by the 1850s, seances and other forms of spirit communication were not only popular in America, but they were seen as fashionable and an accepted pastime. In fact, some of the biggest celebrities and highest paid people of that time period were mediums who claimed to possess a wide assortment of special powers. In fact, quite a majority of them were pretty theatrical in nature, employing all sorts of outlandish gimmicks to kind of gain public favor. And while it was common for friends to gather together on a weekend evening for a nice little seance fun, it was standard practice to hire on a medium to lead. In fact, the very basis of spiritualism, even today, revolves around mediumship. The majority of the public believed during that time that mediumship was a special gift 
It was something bestowed by the creator upon a very lucky few. However, there was a branch off of spiritualism that was gaining popularity at the time. This growing branch of the movement believed that mediumship, the ability to communicate with the spirit realm, was something that everyone naturally possessed. And they viewed it like anything else in life. It just required practice. Now, one method of spirit communication that was becoming really popular at the time was something called a spirit board or a talking board. Now, the spirit board itself had evolved from two common methods that mediums back then were using for spirit communication, spirit writing and table turning, or as we most commonly call it, table tipping. Now, spirit writing is actually kind of interesting. It involved the use of a heart-shaped planchette. Now, on the wide back end, the planchette had two rotating casters that attached to the bottom that allowed for nice fluid movement. Now, on the narrower end, there was a hole where you would put a pencil through, and the very tip of the pencil would act as the third leg of the planchette. So the medium would then put this on a piece of paper, they'd place a hand upon the planchette, and before you knew it, they would be in contact with a spirit, and the spirit would then guide the planchette over the paper, thus writing out a message from beyond. Now table turning, or tipping, involved the medium and those in attendance placing their hands upon a table. And when the medium had channeled a spirit, it would communicate by tipping the table. And, and a lot of times you just have that image in your head of the table just being all crazy and wonky and just going back and forth. But it wasn't like that. So what it was is the table would tip a little bit and then land back on the other two legs. So every time it landed back down, it created a knocking noise. And they had associated letters of the alphabet with the amount of knocks that the table would do. So the number of knocks was associated with the letter of the alphabet and messages could, quite tediously, be transcribed. Now the act of table tipping as a means of spirit communication was actually a direct response to the Fox sisters and that whole phenomenon their story created. Now, if you're not familiar with the Fox sisters, those were the sisters back during that time who had supposedly communicated with the ghost of a peddler and solved a big murder mystery. And it was said that the ghost communicated by knocking on the walls. So they came up with a system to be able to use those knocks to represent letters of the alphabet. And that's how the ghost told its story. So spirit boards came from those two methods. It was kind of a combination of the best of both worlds. And it created a more efficient and more natural way to communicate with spirits. It featured a rectangular board with letters of the alphabet printed on it. And it had a heart-shaped planchette. No pencil this time. And the planchette would be used to point to the letters in order to spell out messages. 
So this new method made it much easier to be able to communicate with the spirit world and made it in a way that just about anybody could do it. So this new method, of course, made waves. And in 1886, an article was written about this amazing new talking board phenomenon that was taking the spiritualist camps in Ohio by storm. Now, as fate would have it, this article was actually pretty popular and it was nationally published. And it soon caught the attention of a Baltimore businessman by the name of Charles Kennard. Now, Kennard immediately recognized the immense marketing potential of such an item. It would be a way to make spirit communication something that anybody could do. And as he saw it, why should mediums be the only ones able to cash in on such a thing? And he also reasoned with himself that he'd actually be doing the public a favor by marketing this, especially for the grief-stricken, because he would be offering them a more affordable means of spirit communication so they wouldn't have to rely on paying handsome fees to a medium every couple of weeks. They could just pay one fee, whip out that little Ouija board, and communicate that way. So in 1890, Kennard contacted and assembled a group of four other investors, whom together they would form the Kennard Novelty Company. And the whole purpose of this little company would be to produce and market these talking boards. Now they chose to incorporate the word novelty into the name to combat any potential suits that would come against them if the boards did not work. In fact, none of the men were spiritualists. And honestly, none of them had any real interest at all in the subject. No interest in spirit communication, the paranormal. They were just shrewd businessmen who recognized a great marketing niche. However, there is some interesting lore that kind of ties in with this. Lore has it that one of the investors, Elijah Bond, had a sister-in-law who was a spiritualist. Her name was Helen Peters. And not only was she heavily into spiritualism, but she also claimed herself to be a powerful medium. And it's said that it was she who gave the board its iconic name. Legend has it that Elijah Bond had gifted his sister-in-law with one of the prototypes, and supposedly, during its first use, she asked the board what it would like to be called, to which it responded by pointing out to the letters O-U-I-J-A, and thus it was so forth called the Ouija board. And legend even has it that Helen also played a crucial role in them being able to secure the patent for the Ouija board. Now, since the men all knew that if they couldn't show the board in action in a really impressive way, that they wouldn't be able to have their patent approved. So Bond brought Helen to the patent office with them so that she could give an impressive performance of the board. It was said that the chief patent officer demanded that the board accurately spell his last name, something which was supposedly unknown to Helen and the others. 
So they sat at a table, hands on the planchette, and, to the patent officer's dismay, the planchette slowly pointed to all of the correct letters for his last name. And as legend goes, that February morning in 1891, a pale-faced and very shaky patent officer awarded the company a patent for their new game. One year later, the Ouija board was a resounding success and pulled in quite a handsome profit for the businessmen. And by 1893, the partners thought it best to sell off the company at a considerable profit while things were still going strong. They had no idea the long-standing nature of the product and thought it was wise to sell it while it was still a novelty. So it came to be that the Ouija board was purchased by a young man who was also a stockholder named William Fold. Now, Fold here is often the one who gets the credit for the Ouija board for creating it, but even he stated many times during his life that he wasn't its creator. Now, what's really fascinating is it said that Fold had a particularly interesting relationship with the Ouija board. He was said to wholeheartedly believe in its power, and he would consult with it regularly. And much to the frustration of shareholders, he would often make business decisions based on the messages the board gave him. He built factories based on his Ouija board sessions, and he even claimed that the board told him his future, including when and where he was going to die. And legend has it that the board predicted that he would die in the last factory that was built. For over 120 years, the Ouija board has always been in production, and it's always been a very good seller for the persons and companies who acquire it. And what's really fascinating about the board is the wide range of people who use them. Now, when we think of Ouija boards, we often think of teenagers or occultists being the primary audience, but that's really not the truth. They are incredibly popular among a vast array of people. People of every social class, education level, profession, religion, use the Ouija board. And what's even more interesting is that sales of Ouija boards always peak during times of economic uncertainty and turmoil. So they always seem to sell even more during the times when people seek guidance and answers the most. It seems we put a lot of stock into the Ouija board. Now for most of the Ouija board's life, it was seen as, by most, a helper, a benign oracle, an instrument to help grieving families communicate with loved ones who'd passed on. So how exactly did the Ouija board come about being the sinister object that we think of it today? How did it get that bad reputation? Well, this really came about in the 1920s. In the 1920s, there were those who believed that the device wasn't communicating with spirits, but with the devil itself. And those people that believed that were mainly the leaders of the Catholic Church. 
and the Catholic Church rallied pretty hard against the Ouija board. And you can thank them for most of those negative associations we have with it. The Catholic Church led all sorts of rallies against the Ouija board, and they claimed it to be black magic. There was even material published by the church where some doctors had supposedly claimed that the boards could bring about a state of dementia. And today the Ouija board is a bit infamous. Almost everybody has a Ouija board story and almost all of those stories are always creepy. So if we know these boards were pretty benign when they were first introduced, why do they now seem to attract so many bad things? Is it thanks to movies, pop culture? Is it because of those that everyone goes into it expecting the negative? So interestingly enough, you can kind of credit pop culture for a lot of our negative Ouija board experiences. Most of that credit can go to a 1971 novel called The Exorcist. And that novel coupled with the success of its 1973 screen adaptation, the Ouija board was cemented in the minds of many as a sinister tool that could open portals, inviting in evil. So perhaps a lot of those negative Ouija experiences happen because that's the user's expectation and what they either subconsciously or consciously seek out to attract. Now, of course, not all believe that you are truly communicating with spirits when you engage with the Ouija board. Many scientists believe that the answers are being given to us by our subconscious, and that perhaps this Ouija board can be an ideal tool for getting in touch with your subconscious. In fact, a lot of creative people Writers especially will use this board for that very reason. It's a way to kind of tap into the subconscious and get some extra good bits to further your creativity. So what do you think about the Ouija board? Do you think it truly does serve its original purpose as a mystic oracle, a spirit communicator? Or do you think it's just a fancy way for us to talk to ourselves. So I want to thank you for listening to today's episode. Please, if you enjoy this, please follow us or share with your friends. You can find us at nighttideradio.com where you can listen to all of our episodes. And with that, I'm Stacy, and this is Nighttide.